Last week, I received an email about the sermon I preached two weeks ago. So I was off last week. It was nice to have a a week of vacation off. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the story of Saul, and we were talking about the issue of insecurity and arrogance. And this is the email that I received this past week about that sermon. It says, this past Sunday's sermon was enlightening, meaningful, and insightful. So much so that those who are willing to identify with the topic, I'm hoping, already emailed you asking for an expansion sermon or a part two. I figured the emails would be pouring in with the request asking or begging you to do an elaboration on insecurity and arrogance. When I sat down in the pew on Sunday and I read the title of the sermon, I said, oh no, out loud. Like one of those, oh no, Pastor Jim is going to talk about me today, sermons. (laughs) But you know, all is well and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Did you get questions from attendees asking you to go deeper, give us some more examples of others in the Bible, and more importantly, real life suggestions on how we can ask God to help us with our arrogances and insecurities? I really think you were touching a surface of somewhere we all need to hear more about, Because like you mentioned, this topic resonates with every individual. When I received that email, I was very glad. It was a very positive email. Of course, Satan always wants your insecurities to kick up and say, well, you didn't cover everything. What's the matter with you? But as I listened to that email and I read it, I realized, you know what? That email wasn't really from a person in our congregation or not simply from a person in our congregation. I recognized that email as being from the Lord. That through that email and through other conversations, I felt like God was saying, yes, I know you have a preaching calendar. I know you have this all laid out, but there's more you need to cover on this subject. And so even though we were supposed to be moving on to another text today, and even though the first sermon was actually two weeks ago, I feel compelled that we need to go back in and talk again about the issues of insecurity and arrogance because it's so prevalent in all, in all of our lives. And I think that email summarizes it exactly. I feel like that sermon we had a couple weeks ago, we really had a chance to dive in and look at some of the symptoms of it. But there wasn't much time to talk about the solution. How do you deal with this? Yes, we can recognize it, but how do we address it? And so this morning, I want to go back into that same text that we were in, 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's page 199 in the church Bibles, and I want to go back into the same situation. And this time I want to try to think together as we think about the issue of insecurity and arrogance. How do we deal with this? How do we address this? It's clear it's in all of our lives. It's clear that we all struggle with this. How do we deal with it? Now, while you're turning, let me review what it is that we said two weeks ago about insecurity and arrogance to bring us up to speed. The first thing was that insecurity and arrogance are two sides of the same coin. What I mean by that is is that there is unexpected pride in all low self-esteem. And there is unexpected low self-esteem in all pride. Sometimes one is more dominant than the other, but they always go together hand in hand. Insecurity and arrogance are two sides of the exact same coin. Secondly, two weeks ago, we identified from 1 Samuel 13 to 15 five characteristics 
that when we recognize these in our lives or in the lives of others, they are telltale signs that what's driving this behavior is insecurity and arrogance. And those five signs were, number one, blaming others and making excuses. When things go poorly and we want to find somebody else, it's their fault. Or we want to make excuses. That's a sign of insecurity or arrogance at work. Number two, making things personal. Driving others to achieve our goals. Viewing others as means to accomplishing our ends. Pieces that we use to get what we want. Number three, responding harshly when someone challenges our leadership or a decision that we've made or who we are. We take it personally and respond with harshness. That's a sign that it's insecurity or arrogance that's at work. Number four, building monuments to ourselves or seeking affirmation from others when we walk around and say, oh, I look terrible today, don't I? That's sort of like, please, someone affirm me. Someone say something positive. It's insecurity and arrogance that's driving that seeking of affirmation. And number five, wanting to please people and worrying about outward appearance. What are people going to think? What do they think of me? Do they like me? That sort of attitude and action is driven by insecurity and arrogance. Now, two weeks ago, we touched on the solution, which is walk by the Spirit. This morning, I feel compelled to go back and revisit that solution to give more flesh to that, to explain that more, to talk it through more. And we're going to be looking in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And you know what? This actually works out perfectly. Because I keep telling you that the chunks in 1 Samuel are too big. We can't cover them all in the morning service. And two weeks ago, there was a section of 1 Samuel 14 that I desperately wanted to cover. And it just wouldn't fit in. There was no time for it. And I timed it backwards and forwards. There was no way to fit it in. Well, now I realize that the Lord was reserving that part of that passage for this morning that he already had in mind. This was supposed to be a two-part sermon. And so we get to look at that section today. Let me bring you up to speed on the narrative. If you remember, Saul and the Israelite army are facing a vastly stronger Philistine army who are gathered in great numbers just across the valley from where they're at. And if you remember from that story, although Saul is afraid and unwilling to admit it, his insecurities are showing through. His son Jonathan and Jonathan's armor bearer lead an incursion into the enemy camp. And the two of them attack the enemy outpost. And God uses that to help Israel have victory. Well, in 1 Samuel 14, we are talking about that two-person incursion into the enemy camp. And we pick up the story in verse number six, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows to the Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said, go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there till we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. In other words, we won't attack. 
We're going to come out into plain view. They're up in this outpost. If they say to us, stay right there, we're coming down to you, we're not going to attack them. But, verse 10, if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now, the story continues. They go out. The Philistine outpost sees them, says, come up. Jonathan says, that's the sign. That's what we ask God for. That means God wants us to attack. So the two men go and attack the outpost. It's arm, It's guarded by 20 Philistines. They completely rout the 20 Philistines. That sends the main Philistine army into panic. Jump down to verse 15 and we pick up the story. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. So the main Israelite camp is watching now the Philistine camp in disarray. They're starting to spread everywhere and Saul sees this happening. He says to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the, the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, wait a second. Do you understand what just happened here? Saul is thinking, okay, look, we're going to actually, we might actually win this thing. And he sees the Philistine camp in disarray. And so he does what every good Israelite leader is supposed to do. He calls for the ark to come, meaning he wants to ask for God's blessing. He wants to inquire of the Lord. That's what this means. He's going to ask the Lord, are we supposed to pursue the Philistines? Should we go attack them? And right in the middle of the prayer, see what it says? The priest already has his hand on the ark. He's interceding on behalf of the army, asking for God's guidance. And Saul, this may be the only place we have this in the whole Bible, actually stops him mid-prayer and says, we don't have time for this. While he's praying, the chaos in the Philistine camp is increasing more and more. And Saul sees this and says, we don't have time for that. Let's go. And that right there is the source of where the insecurities and the arrogances come from. Saul thinks he's his own best hope. That he knows best how to deal with this. Yes, prayer, it's good, it's wonderful, let's do it. Inquire of the Lord, ask God, find us. But not now, we don't have time for that. We've got to go attack them. I know I've seen this before. When the enemy's running, you must pursue them. This is the time. And so mid-prayer, he stops the priest. And he says, I know what we need to do here. There's no reason to ask God. It sees very clear what we need to do. And that's the essence of Saul's problem. Is that he's looking to himself to solve his problem. And we do the same thing. 
We do the same thing. We've got a problem facing us. We've got some sort of situation in our life. And yes, we hear at church. We're supposed to pray about it. Let's listen. Okay, fine. But in the middle of it, something happens. And we're like, we don't have time for that. This is what we need to do. We've got to act now. We must act immediately. And the problem is, is that once we take matters into our own hands, once we see ourselves or our plans or our abilities or our personality as the best solution to the problem, then we're in trouble. Because think about this. If we are relying on ourselves, like Saul is, and not waiting for the Lord, he doesn't have time to wait for the Lord. If we are relying on ourselves to deal with this situation, if we are successful, it's only going to lead to arrogance. Well, I knew what to do. I saw it, I acted, I came, I saw, I conquered. It leads to arrogance. If we act in our own power, with our own plan, our own personality, and we fail, well, the result is going to be insecurity. I'm a terrible warrior. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to lead this army. I thought we could win and we didn't. You see, that's why insecurity and arrogance are two sides of the same coin. They both result from us looking to ourselves. And when we look to ourselves, the only possible thing that can happen is insecurity or arrogance. One of those two things is going to happen. Usually both together. It doesn't matter whether we succeed or fail. The end result will be insecurity and arrogance. This is why the Bible so often says things like Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That's the exact opposite of what Saul's doing. The priest is mid-prayer. And Saul doesn't have time to wait for the Lord. He must take matters into his own hands. Exodus 14, when Israel's got their backs up against the Red Sea, Moses says to the Israelites, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. That's the solution to insecurities and arrogance. It's to wait for the Lord to show up to rescue us. When we take matters into our own hands, when we see ourselves as our own best solution to our problem, the only result that can possibly happen is insecurity and arrogance. Succeed, arrogance, fail, insecurity. That's the only thing that can happen. The Bible says what we need to do is wait. Wait for the Lord. Now some are thinking, well, does that just mean sit around? Do nothing? Is that the solution to uh, to insecurity and arrogance? If me looking to myself is the source of the problem, does that mean I'm just supposed to sit around and hey, God's going to show up. He's going to do something. Why leave my house? Why go anywhere? Why do anything? It's all up to the Lord. There is some times in which that's the case. When the Israelites have their back up against the Red Sea, they don't have a plan. There's nothing that they can do. There is no hope. They must rely completely upon God to come and rescue them. 
But then there's also the story of Jonathan in the text that we're looking at. Whose idea was it to go attack the Philistine outpost? It was Jonathan's idea. He's taking the initiative. He's like, we got a problem here. There's an enemy army over there. We're the good guys. We need to go defeat them. But notice when he takes initiative, he doesn't just go into battle. What he does is say, we've got to take this idea and submit it to the Lord. He goes out there and says, okay, God, I'm pretty sure you want us to fight. Is this the way you want to rescue us? And he says, I give you a chance. If they say this, we take that as a no. If they say this, we take that as a yes. And what Jonathan is doing is taking his initiative, taking his perhaps type A personality and submitting it to God. Sometimes we're in situations that are hopeless and we don't even know what to do. And we're saying, Lord, I'm waiting for you. Sometimes we have an idea about how to do it. But submitting that to God results in the exact same thing. God's the one who ultimately is in charge. And at the end of the day, even though there's two men who beat 20, Jonathan doesn't take credit for it. He said, it's the Lord who delivered us. You see, the solution to insecurity and arrogance is submission and obedience to God. Insecurity and arrogance come from looking to ourselves. Submission and obedience come from looking to God. When we don't wait for the Lord and simply charge into battle using our personality, our money, our abilities, our schemes, the only possible result is we'll be arrogant if we succeed and insecure if we fail. When we wait for the Lord and submit ourselves to Him and obey Him, the only possible result is security. This is what the Lord has decided. This is what God is doing. I'm simply following Him. Now that's great in theory. What does that look like in practice? Suppose you're here, you're a young adult and you want to get married. The world is going to tell you well, you got to make yourself as attractive as possible. You got to date as much as possible. You got to get out and meet as many people as possible. You got to turn yourself into the kind of person that somebody's going to want to marry. You got to take initiative. You got to make this happen. You can't just sit home and wait for a spouse to show up. Well, that's exactly what Saul's doing. He's looking over in the Philistine camp and he's like, how do you win a battle? Well, you can't just stay here. You got to go fight. You got to go do this stuff. And he doesn't wait for the Lord. You can feel that sort of striving, that sort of effort that it all depends on me when you think about finding the spouse. If I don't do something, if I don't make it happen, it's never going to happen. The problem is, is if you approach finding a spouse that way, if you succeed, it's going to lead to arrogance. Well, I attracted this person. I won her hand. I convinced him to marry me. It's because I was smart enough or beautiful enough or successful enough or whatever. If you're not successful, it's going to lead to insecurity. Nobody finds me attractive. Nobody wants to marry me. I'm never going to get married. The only possible result of looking to yourself to solve that problem is insecurity and arrogance. But if you sit back and wait for the Lord and realize that God is whispering in your, look, I love you. 
I created you for a purpose. I have the right person there for you if I want you to get married. I'll bring that person at the right time. Your job is to be still and know that I am God. That if God's got a date and a person he wants you to marry, there's no way to speed that up by working harder now. And in that waiting for the Lord comes security. And say, whether I'm attractive or not attractive is not the point. I'm obedient. I've submitted my marital ideas to the Lord. Now, does this mean you can't have any opinion? You can't have, take any initiative? You can't say to the Lord, what about this person? And what about that person? Absolutely not. But you do what Jonathan did. He has an idea. I think we win by doing this. You may think, I think that's the person for me to marry. That's great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But take it to the Lord and say, is this who you want? Is this how you want to do this? And don't do anything without a yes. Wait for the Lord. He'll respond. Wait. Put our hands on the ark and we think, we don't got time for this. We got our time. She's going to be gone. He's going to go. I've got to make this happen now. And the problem is, is when we do that, it leads to insecurity and arrogance. Imagine that you're very anxious for a part in the school play. You think, oh, this would be so great. I so desperately want a part in this play. The world's going to tell you, hey, look, if you want a part in that play, you better start taking some private lessons. You better go to extra clinics. You better go through all of the coaching. You better take voice lessons. You better do what you need to do. You better audition over and over again to practice, to get ready for those kinds of things. You can feel the striving. You can feel the essence like it all depends on me. If I'm good enough, they'll pick me. All that does is lead to insecurity if you fail, arrogance if you succeed. And God's saying, but I love you. I created you with these talents. I want you to use them. I know best if that play is good for you to have. I know best if you should have that part or not. It's not all on your shoulders. It's not up to you. It's up to me. Wait for me. I will fight for you. I will lead you. I will guide you. Yes, it's perfectly fine to go to the Lord and say, God, what about that part? That seems like a good part for me. That's perfectly fine. But don't do anything until he says, yes, I agree. Don't just simply try out. Ask the Lord, is this what you want me to do? Submission and obedience is the cure for insecurity and arrogance. What about if you've got an idea for a great new program at the church? Suppose you think Arabs are underrepresented at our church. And you think we've got to reach out and we've got to find more Arabs. I'm all for that, by the way. <laughs> and you decide... Well, what would the world tell you to do? If you're going to make something happen, start emailing people, stir up interest, pass out petitions, call people, set up meetings, make something happen. Can you feel that striving? Can you feel that striving? Well, what's going to happen if you're successful? Arrogance. I'm good at getting programs started. I, I'm a mover and a shaker at this church. People listen to me. I'm organized. And if you fail, insecurity. What am I trying to do? Nobody's ever going to follow me. None of my ideas are any good. Instead, listen to the Lord whispering in your, wait for me. I will fight for you. I love you. I see what your giftedness is. I created you that way. I gave you those gifts. I love this church. I know what this church needs. I will move when the time is right. 
Do the same thing that Jonathan did. Say, okay, Lord, if you want me to be part of this effort, if you want me to lead this effort, have someone in the leadership come to me. Have somebody bring it. Let them say this phrase. And if I hear this phrase, then I'll know that you're calling me to lead this. That's perfectly fine. But it's still submission and obedience. Don't do anything until the Lord says, this is the way I want you to go. Look, this applies to every area of life. If you're a parent and you're worried about a teenage child, or maybe you're a grandparent worried about a teenage child, the world's going to tell you, you got you to sit down, you got to talk to them. And as parents, we feel that, don't we? I got to get as many conversations in as possible. If I could just say these words, if I could just get those friends switched around, if I could get them to go to this college, if I could get all this stuff to happen and we think it all falls on our shoulders, my child is going to walk with the Lord depending on what I do. They're going to be successful in life depending on me. We feel all sorts of pressure and we want to talk to them over and over. That's why lots of teenage kids are like, stop talking, I don't want to hear it. But what's going to happen if we're successful? We're going to be arrogant about our abilities as parents. Well, yeah. I took the time to sit down and talk to my kid. I gave them the attention that the reason they're on the right path is because I did what you're supposed to do as a parent. And if we're unsuccessful, we're going to feel insecure as a parent. Nobody listens. My own kids don't even listen to me. They never do what I ask them to do. They've left everything that was important to me and they've gone off in their own way and take that personally. Instead, God is saying, wait for me. I love you. I love your children. Let me give you openings to talk to them. Let me arrange the conversation. Let me tell you when to strike because the iron is hot. This is in many ways why grandparents do a better job than parents do sometimes. It's because grandparents have to wait. They've got to wait to pick their openings. They've got to wait. It's not all on their shoulders. That's what God is saying is, look, it's not on your shoulders. I will fight for you. I will be there for you. Yes, it's fine to take initiative and say, Lord, it feels like I need to talk to my child about this friend. It feels like this person is not a good influence on my child. Lord, do you want me to say something? And the point is, don't say anything until he gives you the opening to do it. If they come home from a, from a, a time out with that friend and say, a, 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 a fun time they've been having with that friend and say, you know what, I just, something doesn't feel right in this friendship. What I'd do is I'd say a quick prayer and say, Lord, is that the opening? Is that what I have been waiting for? And the spirit will lead you and it's, you talk at that point. Again, taking it on our shoulders will only lead to insecurity and arrogance. Submitting our plans, our abilities to God and obeying him leads to security. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I gotta, I gotta fix myself. What is the matter with me? I'm just a ridiculous excuse for a human being. Whatever it may be, the world says you gotta lose weight. You gotta redo your finances. You gotta reinvent your personality. You gotta take some classes. You gotta be a new person. You gotta get a new career. We can look around at people all around us and say, man, if I could only be like that. And we can come up with all these self-help plans and read all these self-help books. But can you not feel the striving in all of that? Can you not feel that it all rests on my shoulders? And the problem is, is that if we're successful, it will only lead to arrogance. Well, I'm good at losing weight because I'm disciplined. I reinvented myself because I sat down one day and decided I was going to do it. And if we're unsuccessful, it will only lead to insecurity. I'm always going to be the same exact person I am. 
Nothing's ever going to change. I can't do these things. I can't learn this stuff. Instead, God is whispering in here, I love you. I'm with you. I'm going to fight for you. I've promised to transform you. Let me take the lead on this. Yes, it's fine to work on weight issues or money issues or educational issues, but with God as the leader, not taking everything all at once and trying to do everything as quickly as possible. God's saying, wait for me. I will guide you through this. I will take you through the things that need to happen in your transformation one step at a time. And whatever he tells you to do, work on it. Work on it with all your heart. Go after it full bore. That's fine. But realize that it's the Lord fighting for us. Not us making it happen on our own. This is what I mean when I talk about walk by the Spirit. God has granted us His personal presence, His Spirit to be with us at all times so that late on that Friday night when your teenage child comes home and you're thinking, is now the time? God is with you at that moment. Ask Him. When you're thinking through in a very dark or discouraging way about what to do about your life, God is with you through His Spirit. Ask Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. He really does respond exactly the way Jonathan does. If you're in a meeting and you're thinking, I got to make this point. And if I make this point, I can turn this whole meeting and go this other direction. Stop and ask the spirit who's in you. Lord, do you want me to say this? If you want me to make this point, have the other people in the room ask me about it. Do something to give the spirit a chance to be able to lead. Because looking to ourselves to solve our own problems, our ability to talk, our ability to persuade people, our ability to plan or to schedule or to make things happen will only ever result in insecurity and arrogance. But when we submit ourselves to the Spirit, when we obey Him, there's great security. This is what we mean when we talk about an undivided heart. We keep using this phrase. I get it. It's a nebulous phrase, but this is what it means. A divided heart thinks that me and God are the solution to my problems. This is what Saul thinks. We're in this together. Sometimes you pray, sometimes you act, but it's us together. That's a divided heart. An undivided heart says, God's the one who's the solution to my problems. A divided heart says, me and God are co-pilots. An undivided heart says, God's steering the ship, I'm a passenger. He's the leader, not me. It never works. Co-leadership in your life will not work. It cannot be you and God. That will only lead to insecurity and arrogance. An undivided heart says, I'm going to wait for the Lord. He's my boss. He's in charge. He's the leader. If he wants me to go, I'll go. If he wants me to stay, I'll stay. If he wants me to move, I'll move. If he wants me to talk, I'll talk. That's an undivided heart. That's what we mean. At the beginning of this week, I was sick. And I think God allowed me to get sick this week because it reminded me of another week in which I got sick. It was a very important week in my life. It was September 10th, 2006. And that was the week that of all weeks, if I had to pick which week did I want to have a sermon that hit the ball out of the park, it was September 10th, 2006. And that's because that was the week I was being installed as the senior pastor of Calvary Church. There were going to be lots of friends and family here. I knew the whole church would be sort of watching with an added intensity because this was a special week. And I thought, all right, I know how to handle this. And so I cleared my schedule. No meetings, no appointments. 
I was going to have a do not disturb sign on my door and I was going to prepare twice as long or three times as long as I know. I was going to make this happen because it was so important. On Monday, I woke up and I was sick. I was like, that's okay. I still got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm all right. Tuesday, I was still sick. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't prepare. I couldn't study. Pray was all I could do. By Wednesday, I started to freak out. By Thursday, I began to call people to see if they would sub for me. God wouldn't allow any of those calls to go through. None of those people, none of those people were available. I wouldn't be able to get a hold of anybody. And I felt like in my soul, you say, how do you, I don't know. I just felt like in my soul, God was saying to me, you know what the problem is, is you trust too much in your preparation. That's where your hope is. You think this sermon is going to go well because you've prepared enough for it. And I felt like God saying to me, I don't want you to prepare this week. I want you to trust me. I want you to wait for me. I will fight for you. I will be there. Now, look, I'm all for preparation. I prepared a lot for this week. I'm not saying that. But in that moment, God was saying to me, you put too much confidence in your ability to prepare. I don't want you to prepare this week. And I stood up on that Sunday morning and I preached. And you know what? I have no idea if that was a good sermon or a bad sermon. I've never listened to it since. I don't have any desire to go back and listen to it. I have no idea if it was a good sermon or a bad sermon. I have no idea if that sermon made me appear as a good preacher or a bad preacher. I was neither one. What I was was an obedient preacher. Means I didn't feel insecure about me as a preacher or secure about me as a preacher or arrogant about me. I simply felt obedient. This was what God asked me to do. And if it was a terrible sermon, that was his call, not mine. That's what we're talking about. Is that in everything, wait for the Lord. Obey him, submit to him. Even when he asks you to do crazy things, crazy things like don't go into battle yet. Wait here. Crazy things like don't prepare this week. Trust me. Crazy things like don't talk to your teenager at this moment. Crazy things like don't say something about that program. Crazy things like wait, wait, be still and know that I am God. And when I show up to rescue you, it will not be you, it will be me. The reason I think that happened in my life September 6, 2000, sorry, September 10th, 2006, was because that was the week I was installed as the senior pastor. And in many ways, it was symbolic for the rest of the ministry. And I felt like at the very beginning, God was saying, it's not ever going to be about you. It's not going to be about your abilities. It's not going to be about your plans. It's not going to be about, it's going to be about me. And you know, God has a funny way of doing that. That at the beginning, he likes to set the pattern for how it's supposed to be from there on out. And this morning, it's no accident that we're celebrating communion. Because what a communion is, is a reminder that at the very beginning, the day in which we were installed as Christians, the day in which we accepted by faith, it had nothing to do with our striving. It had nothing to do with us taking it on our shoulders. We didn't work for our salvation. We didn't earn our salvation. It wasn't because of our personality. It wasn't because of our preparation. It was God fighting for us. We didn't make it happen. He made it happen. And he simply said to us, be still and know that I am God. 
And the point of communion is a reminder that if that's the way we started, that's the way we're supposed to finish. That if we didn't make our salvation happen, how are we going to make our marriages happen? How are we going to get ourselves a part in the school play? How are we going to get a program started at church? How are we going to help our teenage child? How are we going to fix ourselves? If we couldn't save ourselves, how are we going to do any of these things? See, the reason why salvation, true salvation, does not create either insecurity or arrogance is because it's not about what we did. True salvation is simply about us submitting our lives to God and obeying Him. And God's saying, look, how you started is how I want you to finish. And the reason why so many of us experience insecurity and arrogance as Christians is because we started one way and at some point we've left the path. Marlene, can you show that slide? Sorry, Russ, can you show that slide again of those five reasons? Uh, if you notice these things in your life, what it means is that somewhere in that area, we're trying to make it happen on our own instead of waiting for the Lord. Wherever those things are showing up, we're not walking by the Spirit, we're walking by the flesh. And what God's reminding us at communion is, look at, remember how we began this thing. You were waiting for me and I came and rescued you. Come back to that point again. You see, when our strivings cease, then the security and the peace of knowing it's on God's shoulders and not mine. I'm simply here to obey and submit. And my prayer for all of us this morning is, is that communion would be that reminder to us. If you're not a Christian... During this portion of the service, we ask that when this bread and juice are passed out, just let them pass you by. Uh, this, this portion of the service is not really for you. If you are a believer and you're walking with the Lord, take the bread, take the cup. And especially as you hold them in your hand, remember, did you earn these? Are the bread and the cup there because you worked for them? Because you made it happen? Because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps? Or because you waited for the Lord? And if they're in your hand because you waited for the Lord, ask the Lord, God, are there any areas in my life in which I'm not waiting for you? In which I've tried to take the burden on myself? Are there any areas in life where my insecurities and arrogances are showing themselves again? Help me to wait for you.